We're now more than five months into banking during COVID, and lots has happened in terms of actions and adjustments. So what new actions might we expect in financial services, and which of those many adjustments are temporary, and which might be longer lasting? To offer views on this and other banking themes is this week's podcast guest, Tom Brown, longtime bank analyst and investor, and editor-in-chief of a weekly newsletter much read by industry leaders. Actionable insights can help power smart decisions. Each week, the BAI Banking Strategies podcast focuses on important issues facing financial services leaders, as well as the emerging trends that are rapidly reshaping the financial industry. I'm Terry Badger, your host and the managing editor at BAI. Pull up a chair and join us. As it has since March, COVID-19 keeps disrupting, and the financial services industry keeps adapting. Our guest on the podcast this week to offer his thoughts on where things in banking stand now and what might lie ahead is Tom Brown, longtime bank analyst, CEO of Second Curve Capital, and editor-in-chief of Tom Brown's Banking Weekly Newsletter. Tom, we know you're a busy guy wearing all those hats, so we appreciate you making time for us. My pleasure. It's always great to work with the BAI. Tom, we're more than five months into the coronavirus pandemic, and financial institutions have been doing some heavy lifting to support their customers, to support the economy. They've been delivering emergency loans, deferring payments, providing advice to worried customers. Then there's the economic exposure, rock bottom interest rates, tens of billions set aside for loan losses, concerns about balance sheet capital, And then on top of that, there's the operational disruption with work from home, limited branch access, and so on. So given all of these things, all of these factors, and probably things that I didn't mention, what's your sense of how the U.S. banking industry as a whole is holding up right now? I can't believe it has executed as well in the face of all those challenges that you mentioned. You think about having to deal with economy shutting down and sending all your employees home, closing all of your branch lobbies. At the same time, your borrowers need help. So all borrowers have to be contacted about the need for payment deferrals. And then throw on top of that, you say, okay, we're going to come out with this program the PPP, and we're going to distribute $600 billion in 45 days with everybody working from home going through a portal for the with the SBA that has 3,000 employees. I frankly am surprised that the, the media hasn't uh, said more kind things about the banking industry than it has because it has really been a a heroic performance. And, you know, some of the individual stories of bank employees about what they did working 24-7 to get these PPP loans approved is really uh, just incredible to me. So uh, now profits are down 75% in the first half of the year, but the Reserves have been significantly built. In fact, I would argue that the vast majority, vast majority of the credit costs related to this recession have already been absorbed through 
the income statement, and that's a positive. So there's the macro overview. And now that we have that, we can dig down a little bit into some of the particulars. So Tom, for several years now, you've been saying in TV interviews and elsewhere that the biggest banks are much better run these days, especially when compared to the merger frenzy days pre-financial crisis. So what's the evidence for that in 2020? And what does that mean for the rest of the banks and credit unions out there that are not the biggest ones? Well, before I, I give the evidence, let me just say that, you know, really from interstate banking began in 1985, and from 1985 through really 2006, the industry went through massive consolidation at the highest levels. And while we were going through that, the industry was getting bigger at the highest level, but they weren't getting better. And every year between 85 and 2007, the largest banks would close more checking accounts than they would open organically. And so they were so focused on integration of recently acquired institutions that they lost track of being good at the underlying business. And that would be inclusive of middle market lending as well as uh, retail banking. But since then, since the Great Recession, the banks have had to focus, the largest banks have had to focus on organic operations. And whether we look at net new checking accounts opened, the largest banks really measuring, looking at the four largest, the trillionaire banks, have done a terrific job of increasing their share of net new accounts opened. And the four trillionaire banks now have 45% share of the deposits and only 19% share of the bank branches. So about two and a half times the deposit share versus the branch share. On the other end of the spectrum, banks with less than 10 billion have 18% of the deposits and 41% of the branches. So about a ratio that's uh, 0.5 to one in terms of deposits uh, to uh, branch share. So whether we're looking at net new account growth, whether we're looking at branch share, uh, I mean, deposits versus branches, or whether we're just looking at deposit growth, the big banks, and particularly the four largest, have really gotten good at the retail banking business. In your view, how much of this dominance by the biggest banks, by the, the trillionaire banks, as you refer to them, how much of this is based on their size? I mean, I say that because scale is the first common denominator that comes to mind for me. That's the most common explanation. I don't believe it, though. And I, I'll give you a little story. that When Bank of America merged, actually it was Bank America at the time, merged with uh, Nations Bank in 1998, I was a big fan of what Bank of America was doing and not a big fan of what Nations Bank was doing. And it took me two months to talk to Dave Coulter, the CEO of Bank America, and ask him why he did the deal. And he said there were three reasons, one of which they didn't have the management talent, the second of which they needed to spend $500 million on a new retail deposit system, and the third was he just felt that the industry was on the verge of everybody just getting a lot larger, and he didn't want to be in a awkward size. Well, that merger didn't work out very well. The, 
Second reason of uh, needing a new deposit system, the nation's bank future bank system wasn't big enough, robust enough to accommodate Bank of America. And then, of course, the industry did get bigger. There were a lot of deals done in 97, 98, but it didn't, uh, it didn't get better. So when the SunTrust BBT deal was announced, I thought, oh, am I going to see the same thing again? We're going to see some bad deals because of this pressure to grow bigger and achieve scale. And so I called up uh, U.S. Bank Corp CEO Andy Ciceri, and I said, Andy, do you feel pressure now that you see this merger between BB&T and SunTrust to get bigger? And he said, well, Tom, just think about that for a minute. He goes, let's say the BB&T SunTrust merger works out just fine, and after two years, they decide that they're going to merge with the PNC. And let's say that deal goes just fine, and two years after that, they say, okay, let's, uh, let's merge with U.S. Bank Corp. And then we announce the deal. So we have U.S. Bank, we have PNC, we have SunTrust, we've got BB&T. Uh, in terms of size, we're just smaller than Wells Fargo. So his point was, if scale is all about asset size, there's really only four players today that could ever win that game. And so uh, I don't believe success in banking has ever been a function of size. It's a function of performance. Now, in some ways, size does give you an advantage, and we'll probably talk about that later. But I think the important point is banks of any size can win. And I know we'll talk about that later. And the key is staying focused, simplifying your business, and keeping your costs under control. If the smaller banks are up against it, again, in the big metro areas when it comes to retail banking, where's their future? I mean, where, where can they compete if not there? I'm a big believer in two books that were written in the 90s. One is Differentiate or Die, and the other is The Purple Cow. And they're, they both describe the future. They weren't written about banking, but to me, they've always described the future of smaller banks, which is do something different, do it better, and stick with it. Don't try to be all things to all people that a, a banking charter will give you. So be focused. And that's what I think. Find your niche and focus on your niche and really do it well. Clearly, finding a niche that's certainly tried and true in the retail world. I'm thinking about, say, the family hardware store that specializes to compete against the Lowe's and the Home Depots of the world, or you know, specialty retailers finding a way to stay in the game against the Walmarts and the Targets. What are the niches you're thinking about in financial services? Mm, I think I came up with a list of about a dozen. Uh, they can be, for instance, debit card focus banks. Because of the uh, Durbin Amendment, there's a benefit for banks with less than $10 billion to uh, be the bank sponsor for debit card programs such as uh, NetSpend. And we have the Bancorp Bank and Meta are in that category. We have private banks, whether they be First Republic or Boston Private that focused on just the upscale individuals. We have business-focused banks like Service First and Sterling in New York. We have, of course, the custody banks, which have really been the first niche category of banks that I can think about, those being State Street Bank in New York. 
We've got banks focused on just millennials. We've got the, in Chicago, we just opened up the first woman's bank, focusing in on obviously women business owners. We have SBA-focused banks, such as uh, Live Oak. We've got minority-focused banks, such as uh, One United in Boston. We've got banks focused on the venture capital private equity business, such as SVB Financial, the old Silicon Valley bank. We've got many banks focused on the agricultural economy. We've got single-family residential banks that just focus on generating residential mortgage loans, such as Capital Federal. Then we've got banking as a service banks, that this is where they provide really a bank charter to non-banks to get access to the payment rails. And those are companies like Stride Bank and Cross River Bank. And the last one is we've got a pick your spots bank. And I I like this category because certainly I own one of them, but uh, Tri-State Capital and First Internet Bank, they have chosen a few, a handful of niches to focus on. Those are the spots that they choose to compete. So there are many different ways to win in this uh, banking industry, which is one reason as an observer, I really like to be a banking analyst. That's a pretty lengthy list. But, you know, one thing I didn't hear on that niche list was asset management. So what do you think the future holds for banks that rely on the asset management space, uh, you know, particularly given the strong trend toward passive investing and ETFs and not to mention the race to zero for the brokerage side? Right. Well, there are a lot of secular changes going on in the asset management business, but the most powerful being the movement, as you mentioned, from active management to passive management. That's unfortunate for me because I'm an active manager, but it's a trend that I can't stop and nobody can stop. It's the way we're headed. So what I think is that the bank trust departments, uh, which involve the management of client assets and then the investment management process, that the investment management side of the trust business is gonna be more passively oriented and probably the job growth prospects in the old trust business are not as attractive as they used to be. But the trust business overall should be a gold mine for every bank, though it's not a gold mine at every bank. But as the baby boom generation continues to age and we go into retirement, the need for trust is going to increase and the asset creation in the baby boom generation has been phenomenal. So this intergenerational transfer of wealth is gonna be fantastic. So the long-term prospects for banks in the asset management slash trust business are really very attractive. Going back to the long list that you had, you know, you ticked off some institutions there, you name check them, but even the ones that you termed as smaller banks, they're still pretty good sized companies. So let's think smaller. What about much smaller institutions like community banks, like credit unions? What's your outlook for them? And what do you see as their best path to long-term viability? Well, I do believe, and I think the numbers prove this, that the on average, you know, there's 5,100 banks in this country. On average, the profitability goes up with size. That wasn't always the case. It used to be that the sweet spot in banking was 
banks with assets between five and ten billion dollars, but that wasn't the case last year. And because of the technology investments required and the regulatory burden that's been put upon all banks, it's made it tougher for smaller institutions. With that said, that's an average. And the average return on assets goes up with size. But there's a bank that I look at that's $350 million in assets that makes 2.5% return on its assets. So it is tougher to be a smaller bank and have superior profitability, but it is not impossible. And the way that that bank does it, that $350 million bank, is again, a very focused strategy on highly profitable business lines. And so it can be done. It's not easy. On average, it won't be, but it can be done. Tom, do you have any perspective on how COVID-19 may be further strengthening, further fortress building, if you will, for the big guys, or whether it's providing any advantages for the little guys, for the niche players that you're talking about? Well, in the last 30 days, I've probably talked to uh, oh, 30 bank CEOs, all between $1 billion and, uh, well, $2 trillion in assets. The most common, I guess, takeaway so far from uh, their COVID experience, besides the positive side of dealing with all they had to that we, we talked about at the beginning, is the uncertainty that it's created. So these every bank was able to handle all of its business through its drive-through tellers and its digital banking technology. And the question is that every one of these CEOs is struggling with is what do I do with my branch system going forward? Because I just proved that I don't need as many branches or certainly I don't need as big of branches and I don't need as many bank employees in those branches as I used to but will consumers go back to their old behavior or is this a permanent change? And the other one is the work from home situation, which is what do I do with employees that in the currently, they may not even wanna come back to work because they don't feel safe, but we were able to do all this work with people stationed at home. What does that say about my future office space requirements. So right now I see the industry having made its way to dealing with the COVID pandemic. It's raised a lot of questions among the CEOs, but the CEOs don't want to make permanent decisions yet based on what they've seen. You go into some detail there about the branch closing uh, conundrum that they may be facing. So a lot of people are predicting that once we're on the backside of COVID, that this will accelerate branch closings because of all the gains in digital banking. The acting head of the OCC just recently warned financial institutions about tying branch closure to the pandemic. But do you think, can there be any teeth to something like that? After all, banks have to look at their P&L, right? They have to do what makes sense operationally to right size and to control their costs. Well, let's put this in some perspective, because I'm the guy that's been for the last decade calling for more rapid branch closures overall. From 1995 until 2009, which was the peak, the banking industry's number of branch locations went from 81,000 to 99,000. Now, 
it's pretty easy in hindsight to look back and say consumer behavior was already changing at that time with customers going online, more deposits through ATMs, et cetera. Yet the industry went through this crazy branch growth really fueled by free checking accounts and the customers bouncing so many checks in those free checking accounts, they were profitable. And the thought was that we just need to get more accounts and we'll do that by opening branches. Well, then the world changed. In 2009, we've gone from 99,000 branches down to 81,000 branches. And so we've reversed the entire course that we took place. And I think the industry needs significantly fewer branches than the 81,000. But from here, I think whether it's legislatures or regulators, the pressure to not close bank branches will increase every year, even though economically it's going to suggest that we should do it and do it at a faster pace. Certainly among the many major issues that the industry is dealing with now and will continue to deal with for many years to come. So Tom Brown, editor-in-chief of Tom Brown's Banking Weekly, our thanks again for joining us on the Banking Strategies podcast. Thank you, Jerry. And for those who want to learn more, Tom will be featured in a BAI webinar on September 15th, where he will present an extended play version of his idea about banking niches. Registration for the Tom Brown webinar is available at our website, BAI.org. A few takeaways from our podcast conversation with Tom Brown. First, the biggest banks may have labored while digesting their many acquisitions during the pre-financial crisis merger boom. But now, Tom says, these institutions are formidable and efficient competitors in the retail banking space. Whether measured by net new account growth, by deposit share, or by deposit growth, the so-called trillionaire banks dominate the retail space, and in doing so, make it ever more challenging for smaller banks to compete. So where does this growing moat around retail banking leave everyone else? Tom Brown's advice is that they should try to find a specialty niche where they can thrive. This could mean focusing on card programs or providing custodial services or targeting segments like small business, high net worth families, or even millennials. While mass market success may be difficult to achieve, smaller banks can still find a way to win. And finally, Tom's CEO conversations during COVID highlight ongoing uncertainties. The list of difficult issues includes what to do with their branch networks and also what the office of the future might look like. The pandemic has shown branches and offices are not necessary for customers to bank or for employees to work. But it's still not clear that the makeshift response to COVID represents a permanent shift in behavior. Thank you for listening to this week's BAI Banking Strategies podcast. I'm Terry Badger, Managing Editor of BAI. Please join us again next week for another conversation focused on key issues facing the financial services industry.